am Max. I am Rich. Yeah, and on this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode, we'll be taking a look at Weird War Tales number 23. But first, Rich is going to hit you with some retroactive history. It happened again, dear listeners. I got curious about something we said in an old episode and had to dig deeper. In Weird War Tales 15, I was jonesing about the Pirates of the Caribbean Zap Action toys and actually went back to the well for a second ad in a later issue. Originals sell for hundreds of dollars on eBay. Well, in 2017, Lindbergh Model Kits got the rights, modified the casts, and reintroduced three of the kits to the market. There's a picture of what used to be called the Dead Man's Raft in this episode's album, now called Hex Marks the Spot. They're all reasonably priced in the $20 to the $30 range and look sharp as hell. Urge to buy. Rising. Moving on to the Intel report. 68, published by Image Comics. A zombie apocalypse begins on the battlefields of Vietnam and soon spreads stateside. There are six trade paperbacks that collect miniseries and one-shots together. We'll do a special mission of a one-shot at some point, no doubt. Better Run Through the Jungle from March 2012. Scars from April 2013. Jungle Gym from October 2013. Rule of War from January 2015. Homefront from January 2016. And Last Rights from January 2017. I add artist Richard Bonk signed the bad sign one shot at a con. These are pretty good books. Uh, (laughs) During the write-up for this episode, I discovered I only had about half of these collections. I thought I had since rectified that oversight, but one of the three collections I ordered has apparently been lost even by the Postal Service's admission. So yeah, I got to look into that. Yeah, lost. Lost in the uh, Bermuda Triangle of zombies. Well, Well, I got the email from Amazon. Apparently, your package has been lost. I'm like, okay, now what? You know, we're going to give me my my money back because it's the Postal Service's (laughs) fault. That's 20 bucks. I'm I'm never going to see you again. Yeah, they just don't want you to complete your collection. It's a curse. Yeah, right. So after uh, after that, we're going to take a little podcast promo break, after which we will get back to the issue at hand. Hey, buddy. Want to go for a ride in my flying car? Nah. How about we go fly around with our jetpacks? Nah. The future's just so boring. Is the future boring you too? Well, maybe you should listen into the Save for Half podcast. The podcast about old school gaming, where we take a look at old gaming books with fresh eyes. You can find us at saveforhalf.com or on iTunes or around the corner. Perhaps we're standing behind you right now. Don't look. And we are back. Looking at Weird War Tales number 23, we're going to have Rich, as usual, give you the cover detail. At this point, I think Luis Dominguez has done more covers for this series than Joe Kubert has. The mystery and madness of Weird War Tales is still 20 cents. Under an orange sun and a purple sky, a unit of American soldiers flee in terror from a massive raptor swooping down on them. Mounted on the raptor's back is what appears to be a skeletal German soldier. It wears a cape and a sword, 
brandishes an MP40 and has a helmet that is a combination of a pickle helm and the classic erroneous horned Viking helmet. Cover date, March 1974, released December 26th, 1973. Killjoy, capes, swords, MP40, and horned pickle helm. Sure, why not? <laughs> so leading off with the comments and commendations, first of all, I'll say, yeah, I can't think of a reason why not. Uh, I love this cover, and I specifically want an action figure playset of this warrior the Deathbird mount, and the panicking soldiers to put on my desk at work. Someone 3D print this for me or something. Uh, my birthday is always coming soon enough one way or another, all right? Beyond the toyetic appeal to my avarice, the colors on this cover, while simple, really work perfectly for me. I especially like the touch of the blood red disc in the sky behind this mounted warrior. It's just, it's so atmospheric. And when you look at the colors, as I said, they're pretty flat, pretty simple, but incredibly effective. So I'm off to a good start. Something keeps telling me that the birds should be bigger or the mounted soldiers should be smaller. There's something about the scale that bothers me a little bit. A smaller soldier would imply that the bird is that much bigger, which would be awesome. Run away! <laughs> yeah, either way. I mean, I figure if a, if a raven was that big, it could probably carry a human away in its claws, but who knows? It's the weird war. So... With the cover out of the way, Rich will tell you about the first story in the issue. A bird of death. Fitting. 11 and a half pages. Script by John Albano. Art by Alfredo Alcala. Private Bezco is the only person in his unit that can see the bird of death when it flies overhead. It always means someone is about to get killed. He sees it flying over B Company's area right before a German artillery barrage obliterates them. Afterward, the sergeant and lieutenant discuss Bezco's odd behavior, and the sergeant talks to Bezco directly, wondering if he's bucking for a Section 8 by pretending to see the bird. In the middle of defending himself, Bezco sees the bird again, flying directly overhead. He runs off, yelling for everyone to take cover. Before the sergeant can react, he's killed by a strafing enemy fighter. More aircraft attack, and Bezco's unit is decimated. He cries, wondering why no one would listen to him. A few days later, Bezco has been reassigned to a new unit. The sergeant tells Cowboy to stick close to the new kid until it's seen how Bezco performs under fire. Later, the Americans are poised to attack a German-held town. Bezco sees the bird flying over it. Fighting through town, Cowboy, Bezco, and the sergeant clear a rooftop of an enemy machine gun. German artillery begins to rain down and the building the three men are on top of collapses after a direct hit. They are knocked unconscious and are captured by the enemy. The following day, Major Hartman begins the interrogation of his prisoners. The sergeant had heard of him. Hartman's a savage, a master of torturing men beyond their limits of endurance. And he starts with Cowboy. Bezco and the sergeant soon hear screams coming from the interrogation chamber. Cowboy refuses to crack, and over an hour later, the German guard dumps him back in the cell. Cowboy is dead, his body and face covered with burns left by a branding iron. Bezco is next, and he's terrified. He's not as strong as Cowboy, and will talk, but the Sarge has confidence in him. Once outside, Bezco sees the bird flying over a certain spot in the woods and gets an idea. He agrees to cooperate with Hartman. 
but only if their talk takes place where no one else can see them. The major agrees. They take a car and drive into the woods. Bezco directs the driver until they're directly under the bird when the car runs over a landmine. Everyone inside is killed. The Sarge hears the commotion and understands what happened. He doesn't know how, but he knows Bezco knew what awaited him in the woods. Killjoy. Yeah, they've done this a few times in this series with US and German national insignias on equipment, making what should be white, red. Page 11, panel seven is a good example. And apparently undershirts don't exist here. Uh, comments and commendations. Uh, I love Alcala's art and his trademark uniformed one-eyed death. The fat, tyrannical Major Hartman is your stereotypical Nazi. I like the Germanic accented lettering often used when the enemy speaks. But there's something oddly comical and off-putting about this picture of Hitler on the wall over Hartman's shoulder on page 10, panel three. Kind of looks like an eight-year-old kid that doesn't want to eat, eat his vegetables at summer. He's all pouty and yeah, I don't want to. Go take a look. Nine. I refuse. <laughs> so yeah, man, I liked this story at first. Then it felt like it was dragging on a bit to me. The ending made it worthwhile with Bezco using the death bird to lure the Nazis and himself to their doom. I get what they were going for by keeping Bezco's bird off panel for most of the story, but it does make the pages a little more visually boring than I would have liked and certainly more so than that awesome cover had promised me. Uh, however, Alcala's art is great for what he's been told to depict in the script, and I will pick for Spotlight his super cool work on the title logo for this story on page one. The thing just looks fantastic. I I'd put that on a t-shirt. It looks like the opening title for a movie is really, really cool. So yeah, I, I ended up liking the story. I did I, I did in the middle of it feel like, all right, now he's going to another company. We still never see the bird, you know? And, and to me, one little note out, off script here is as we're going back through the story, I realized this is reminding me of the um, the myth of the Mothman, you know, this, this winged red-eyed figure that's always seen in kind of a shadowy silhouette right before something terrible happens. So this, this omen of death thing, it's, it's this close to stories I've been hearing lately over the last decade or so about the Mothman. So, yeah, just neat to see how uh, these common mythology things pop up. Yeah, like I said, it, kind of, it kind of dragged a little bit for me, too, but it was a bad story. No, nah, I, I just feel the pacing was a little bit off overall, especially when he pulled his move at the end. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was really cool. Like, I liked how he used that. And he went out like a hero because he knew much like I would know, probably way before him, that he wasn't going to hold up well under torture. <laughs> I felt for him then. I was like, yeah, man, that would be me. I'm like, oh, I am totally going to talk. We got to figure something out. Like, <laughs> they did that to that dead guy in the cell. They're not going to do that to me. <laughs> Yes, I dug it. But um, as as a bit of mercy for what, what I went through last episode, Rich is going to take also the next little story, a little two-pager, and uh, I'll let him tell you about it. Yeah, I uh, yeah. volunteered for the mission here. Uh, the day after Doomsday. We're back to this one. Two pages, script by Len Wein, art by Alex Nino. A starving survivor of the nuclear apocalypse staggers through the ruins, looking for something to eat. He is overjoyed to uncover a vending machine, but discovers he doesn't have any money. 
In desperation, he hammers on the machine with a piece of wreckage until he hears something moving inside it. A fountain of dimes cascades out. No food, just money. The last man on earth walks down the street laughing like a lunatic. What am I going to do with money? All the small change I can eat. <laughs> so yeah, you say there's no killjoy, but um, I'll, I'll give you some killjoy for this one. This guy and this story was incredibly dumb. Break the glass window on the vending machine, stupid. You deserve to starve, you know? Like, And also just look in one place for food and then give up forever and lose your mind. Yeah, I can see how he survived the apocalypse when no one else did. And also, as our frequent writer, Jason Zeller, might say, the Twilight Zone already did this story in the All the Time in the World episode with Burgess Meredith, and they did it a lot better. Rich Buckler also slept through this one, too, it seems, except for maybe the spaceship in the first panel, which I wish I was on as long as it was leaving the story behind. Yeah, I like the narrator death, the bullet hole in the helmet on page one, panel one. Next. Well said. So speaking of next, the second story is called Corporal Kelly's Private War. It is only six pages. Script is by George Cashdan with art by the awesome Alex Nino. Synopsis for the story goes a little something like this. Corporal Kelly is on solo watch at a radar station on a tiny island. He joined the army to see some action. So watching a bunch of blips on a screen in the middle of nowhere really rubs him the wrong way. Grabbing a can of sea ration beans for lunch, he screams as he suddenly goes swirling down into a dark, endless void. He wakes up on a table with two alien creatures standing over him. They're red and black with five eyes and tentacles. Kelly is groggy and wonders what the gag is. However, it's no joke. The aliens hadn't known their ray could transmit a living being across the interdimensional void, but here he is. Unfortunately, Kelly can't help them with their war. Kelly perks up, war? And the aliens answer, yes, our army is girded for an attack that's doomed to failure. The enemy's weaponry is much superior to ours. Kelly asks why he doesn't hear anything with all the action going on outside. Turns out the alien's race has a vulnerability to the slightest sound vibrations. All of their machinery and weaponry are soundless. They only use heat rays and light wave vibration weaponry. One loud noise in the enemy encampment would bring victory, but they don't have anything to generate such a sound. Kelly has an idea as he starts tossing the can of beans in the air and tells the aliens to prepare for a full-scale offensive. Later, the enemy green aliens are surprised to see forces massing against them and ready for a counterattack. As they move into position, a red alien craft flies over them, ejects the can of beans with a parachute, and speeds away. A heat ray focuses its fire on the floating can of beans until the pressure builds and the can explodes. The green aliens writhe in agony as, at the sound as the red aliens and Corporal Kelly attack. The green aliens quickly surrender and the war is over. The red aliens, <laughs> the red aliens gratefully send Kelly home, who is grateful he at least got to fight in a war. He went, oh, nice. <laughs> This is what happens when I leave the uh, screen open. And a yeah. great <laughs> Goodbye, folks. Man, if they were in that other dimension, those aliens would be doomed. <laughs> 
Let's close that window. Okay, so where were you? <laughs> we'll start. We'll start from uh, the red aliens gratefully send Kelly home, who is grateful he at least got to fight an A war. He wakes up with an angry army captain shaking him. While Kelly was asleep at his post, the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor. Kelly could have warned them if he'd been awake. Instead of fighting in this new war, Kelly is arrested for his criminal laxity. He protests that. He hadn't been sleeping. He'd been spirited off to another dimension. Corporal Kelly spends the rest of his life in a military insane asylum, still protesting his innocence and wondering if the whole thing hadn't been a dream after all. Now, Rich, (laughs) as you might imagine, has a little bit of killjoy for this one. Just a little bit of killjoy for this one. The radar station at Pearl Harbor was actually mounted in trucks and manned by two privates on December 7th. The Opana radar site, which picked up the incoming attack, was located on the northern coast of Oahu, not some dust moat of an island offshore. And Kelly certainly wouldn't have been there alone. The warning Opana sent out was ignored because it was thought the big incoming blip on the screen was a flight of B-17 bombers. Said unarmed bombers had the lousy luck of arriving from the States in the middle of the attack, low on gas, and forced to land under fire. Your them were destroyed, by the way. Comments and commendations. Too many fart jokes. Ugh. Page three, panel four. Kelly flipping the can of beans, talking about a full-scale offensive. <laughs> now these are some aliens. They're almost comical in a Keith Giffen Star Wars kind of way. Where's Ambush Book? Love Nino's art in this one. The time warp effect on page one, panel three, where Kelly is fragmenting and the futuristic weapons. The more I read it, the more I liked it. Two thumbs up. Yeah. I ended up loving this one, too. Uh, Once the completely nonsensical rules about the aliens' warfare started spilling out, I realized Kelly was having a dream. And that let me just relax and enjoy the shenanigans. I mean, we cannot stand even the slightest sound vibrations, said the alien out loud as they kept talking and talking, you know, and probably making footstep noises and all other kinds of stuff, but the slightest sound vibration will destroy them. So that's when I keyed in. Oh, okay. Cause he just suddenly starts disappearing. Like, like in the synopsis, he he's flipping the can of beans and all of a sudden it's dimensional vortex time, you know? And then I'm like, Oh, he just passed out from boredom. So then I was able to get into it and enjoy it. As for the art, uh, Nino gets even more abstract than usual in this story, and it really worked for me. The dimensional travel special effects are superb, and the final shot of our skeletal host is so overstylized that it goes round the corner from very inaccurate drawing of a skull all the way back to so fascinating I can't stop looking at it for me. So I was a big fan of this story as well. Not only did we have, you know, bean warfare against aliens, but we had Nino's art and just a classic story of some some doofus having a dream and everyone had to pay the price for it. Uh, yeah, this fit right in. This this is weird war tales, people. I loved it. So this is what you spent your 20 cents on back in 1973. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, man. This is what I would want. So we got the two stories out of the way. Uh, I say two because that doomsday thing doesn't count. And we are going to move it on up to the APO Weird War Tales letters page office. On the top of uh, the APO Weird War Tales, a little bit of an explanation 
from uh, or Joe Orlando here. It goes a little something like this. Before we begin the usual round of letters and answers, I'd like to talk to you a minute about the day after doomsday stories that have appeared in our last two issues. The episode which ran in our last issue was a reprint. It originally featured in Witching Hour number nine. And the story in this issue was commissioned by Dick Giordano when he was editing Mystery Mags for DC, but never used. Since many of you like Weird War Tales to feature at least one futuristic story per issue, and since good plots for sci-fi war stories are very hard to find, these Day After Doomsday episodes are being included in order to balance the tone of Weird War Tales. Scripts for new stories have been prepared by Steve Skates, Skates, however the hell you say that, and you'll be seeing them in Weird War Tales as soon as the ink is dry on the art. In the meantime, please send in your comments on the new series. Thanks. Well, so far, we're agreed it's over two, but. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he wants to see the comments on those yet. Um, at least these were just, he admits the two we've seen are just inventory stories that were written to fill space. And that's what they feel like. I'll be interested to see if uh, Skeets and company turn in some more entertaining fillers because Steve is a good writer. So hopefully they won't feel quite as bad. We'll see. We'll, we'll have no choice. So moving on with the rest of the letters page, these next three letters are all about one thing. And it kind of makes me feel a little bad, not just for Joe Orlando, but for being one of these people myself. <laughs> so there's three letters in a row that rag on Joe and the series about how they're not handling vampires correctly. I left these letters specifically for you. <laughs> Yeah, so I'll bounce through them quickly here. We've got one from uh, R. Jones King in North Carolina talks about how Captain Black and issue 18 and the female vampire he has just killed are both clearly visible in a mirror, and that's not supposed to be possible. The next letter from Ira Berlowitz of White Lake, New York, talks about how in that same issue, there's a vampire casting a shadow. You know, you showed the shadow of a vampire. Explain that, please. And uh, you blew you know, all it the, this time. Yeah, all the way, um, <laughs> all the way. Joe is like deferring his answers till he gets to the third one. And so, this last of the vampire letters from Ken Hummer, pause for laughter, uh, of Indianapolis, Indiana, says that you know, as far as I know, vampires turn to dust when killed by a stake through the heart. But this didn't happen in number eighteen. Why? So. I'll read Joe's whole response here because it's worth it. And I feel I owe him as much because I've been picking on the daywalking vampires from jump. Both have been. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Joe responds now to take all three sets of questions at once. First off, the panel showing Captain Black's reflection in the mirror was a mistake for which we are going to punish Arnold Drake by forcing him to read Dracula 50 times a day for a week. So that sounds fair. On the question of showing a vampire shadow, that's just artistic license, since it didn't really have anything to do with the story. Occasionally, an artist needs to use shadows for special effects, and it's a pity to have to limit them. The last question, by the way, that that answer is a cop-out, but yeah, the last question is the only one that I claim total innocence on, though. To the best of my knowledge, the only vampires who turn to dust when killed, are those who have lived longer than ordinary human lifetimes. Their collapse is caused by their age catching up to them, not their death by staking. Otherwise, why would it be standard practice to cut a vampire's head off its body and bury them separately? And I gotta say, excellent point by Joe. 
full marks. <laughs> he, he judo flipped that one to the ground because yeah, it is a <laughs> big, it is a big part of vampire legend that to truly kill them after you stake them, you have to cut the head off and burn the body and the head in separate piles. And even with old school vampires who've been around a long time. So the turning to dust thing is wildly inconsistent until you get to Buffy the Vampire Slayer series in the in the 90s, which um ain't quite happened yet when this comic came out. But yeah, that show just to, you know, dispense with having a bunch of dead bodies laying around probably to please the TV censors just had them, you know, all the vampires turn into a shaky looking CG dust whenever she staked them, like she was popping balloons. <laughs> so, but Joe had a great point there. And, you know, I, I really hope this is the last of people bugging him about this, even though I am one of those people. But uh, it, it was something to see three of these in a row in one issue and for Joe to just go, all right, line up, taking y'all at once. <laughs> Well, we had a day walking vampire in the last issue, so we'll see. <laughs> okay, my turn. I'm going to go with Guy, or sorry, I'll, sorry, I'll go French, Guy Lillian III from Lewiston, New York, when he says, Dear Editor, when I first heard the title Weird War, I thought, we've just been through one of those. Who needs a comic on the subject? And didn't shell out any money for it. For 17 issues, we did not cross paths. Now the 18th issue has arrived, and I find myself asking, where did I go wrong? Plainly, Weird War is the best weird mag and one of the best war comics coming from National today. I refer particularly to number 18's lead story, Captain Dracula. The comics genre abounds with first or second person accounts of the lives of monsters. And while the title character didn't tell the story himself, its focus never left him. Needless to say, the typical excesses of this sort of story did not occur here. It was subtly and effectively done. War is full of horrors, as everyone who can read and is willing to do so now knows. I used to think it's some sort of sick perversion to set the occult in a war story, but now I see it as a metaphor. The terrors, the supernatural serving as a backdrop only for the all too natural atrocities of combat. For 17 issues, I let this very valuable experiment pass me by. Like I say, where did I go wrong? And I have to say, that was a well thought out letter. <laughs> I, I, that was a good letter. I, I, that was very well thought out. I, I enjoyed that. Someone finally read that letters column where Joe Kubert asked for thoughtful, well-constructed letters. <laughs> There you go. We got one, people. Ring the bell. <laughs> it only took 18 episodes, but hey. <laughs> it, got, it got there. 18 or yeah. 23 or whatever the hell number was. I love it, man. <laughs> Joe Kubert's plea for well-thought-out, constructive letters is finally answered. We've reached a milestone here, people. And speaking of, you know, highfalutin uh, milestones and whatnot, we're going to talk about some advertisements now. So, Rich, what was your spotlighted ad for this issue? Gotcha. Cox gas-powered model airplanes. Fly and win with a ready-to-fly Cox early bird, Fokker D7, Sopwith Camel, Fokker triplane, each complete with four-foot competition, competition streamer, fuel, battery, and accessories, all at a new low price. The trick is to outmaneuver your opponent, get behind him, close in as he dives, loops, and does a snappy wing over in an effort to escape, then bore in and cut his tail streamer with your prop. You've got them. These are ready to fly. Easiest starting authentically designed gas engine powered models, precision built by Cox. And uh, 
yeah, this is this was this was this was the one ad that jumped out at me. Um, you control them from the ground with control wires and walk in small circles as you engage each other. Kind of reminds me of probably like the 20th century equivalent of uh, fighting kites. Uh, I had to go on eBay and look for these things, obviously, me being me. Uh, someone in Canada has a new in-box Fokker triplane and wants, with shipping and handling, about $2,000. Good luck. More realistically, a Sopwith Camel with original box and shipping and handling was about $409. And, and I actually did a look up for a video on these online. And yeah, these would have been, there's, there's these things are out there still working. So it was pretty fun to watch. Yeah, reading that, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because reading that out, I'm like, there's no way these things can maneuver that well. Like they're describing all these tricks in the air and everything. And I'm like, yeah, you try one of those, like I'm going to flip the whippity-doo or whatever and your plane's upside down on the ground broken. But <laughs> that's well, all I could think of. Well, that was the thing is the video I was watching. I mean, he, um, I think, I don't know if he got his, his wires crossed up or there was a gust of wind or something like that, but his plane's stalled and just nosedived into concrete from about 50 feet up parts <laughs> well, that sucks <laughs> yeah that's more what i was expecting and for me i, I feel like those prices are reversed man because I'm, I'm not a big a big aviation or airplane guy but i'm like the Sopwith camel worth less than the Foker. I mean, the Sopwith Camel was was what Snoopy flew, right? Mm -hmm. You know? So wouldn't that be more expensive? <laughs> In my logic, that's how it works. <laughs> Maybe the guy from Canada was from Germany or something. Huh? <laughs> It'd be. Maybe Snoopy's less popular up there. I don't know. Freaking Canada. But hey, um, I spotlighted ahead for the issue is a, is a doozy for me. It starts off, the big banner atop the page is, Fear no man! With your first lesson, you start using these destructive self-defense methods to render any bully twice your size absolutely helpless in seconds. So again, we have one of these ads for self-defense in a comic book, which is like, hey, nerd, stop getting the crap kicked out of you at school and stuff, you know? <laughs> So this this ad is a gold mine of of bombastic writing. So I'm just going to skip through it a bit. Uh, the next big banner below a whole bunch of small type that no one's going to read. Um, says, yeah, especially me. <laughs> but really, I mean, it's just like they're going to look at the bold words that say karate, judo, foot fighting, foot fighting. OK, rough and tumble boxing. They're going to look at that and go, yeah, yeah. OK, but when do I get the booklet that lets me beat up people, you know, boot to the head? Yeah, yeah. How long does that take? So the next big banner says, become a terrifying, destructive, self-defense fighting machine in just 12 short lessons. I love that. that that's like a Rob Zombie song title in the making. <laughs> he's, he's definitely going to sample some of the dialogue, some of the, the language from this ad. And then it just says, not size, not power, not strength. And I'm imagining a lot of the geeks are like, yeah, those are three things I do not have. So <laughs> also kind of written like Yoda here. And then, you know, some of the dialogue below that, some of some of the, the ad copy below that says, what's the secret? I don't care if you're skinny or fat, muscular or weak, tall or short, 15 or 50. Hey, I'm 50. Lay off. <laughs> How young or old you are, I can turn you into an arsenal of 
power. I mean, dun, dun. that is a heck of a promise, man. I, I love that. I can turn you into an arsenal of power. As Darkseid said, he will be the tiger force at the core of creation. I mean, this is almost written in Jack Kirby language, man. It's it's that oversold. I love it. It took 20 years and over $200,000 to uncover these terrifying combative methods of the past. <laughs> Yeah, but you can get started with this booklet for just 25 cents. <laughs> so, you know, they, they, they're they doing this practically for free out of the goodness of their own bully massacring hearts. You know, <laughs> they're doing this. They're, they're, this is altruism here, man. So, again... I just found this really entertaining. There's there's some cool art down the sides of people just locked in Mortal Kombat beating the crap out of each other. And then this incredibly bombastic stuff. And by the way, this is this program uh, supposedly comes from Joe Weider, acknowledged world's number one trainer of champions. That is the vaguest title I have heard in a long time. And I work for a large corporation. Like I am the world's number one trainer of champions. Champions in what? I said trainer of champions. <laughs> I freaking love it. And that's the other thing. You have this ad here earlier in the book. You have, you know, the uh, karate judo jujitsu savat ad. And on the very back of that, you have one of these, the simple advice that changed Bob's body and his entire life. You know, so there's at least three of these. Are you tired of getting the crap kicked out of your comic book boy? Advertisements. <laughs> and isn't the Bob's body ad also a Joe Weeder thing? Um, I think it is. Uh, yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. So he's all over this book, man. He's like, you know, if like, <laughs> if like lifting weights doesn't work. <laughs> nice. See, and your dog is like, I can show you how to take a guy down. Don't worry about that. Bite him in the ankle. Right. Dachshund, man. You better watch out. So, like, Bob's like, if weightlifting doesn't work, if exercises don't work, I'll just teach you how to throat punch a guy. <laughs> I love it. So, we had some uh, some nice typical 70s comic book ads. The, the, the funny thing is, when I, was, when I was going through basic and stuff like that, you know, you have all the you know, the self-defense training and stuff that, 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 that they push you through. But they also go out and tell you, it's like, now, don't be thinking that you can just go into town and kick everybody's ass, okay? You've learned just enough to get your ass killed. <laughs> yeah, it's called, it's called last resort. I mean, in the army, they're like, we're going to be giving you weapons. Try using those first. <laughs> <laughs> we'll teach you the really, really dangerous stuff when you're about to deploy. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know. We'll be picking uh, fights with the townies. <laughs> <laughs> so so all that peace and love aside, all that make no war vibe aside, we are going to move on to the section that we like to call Got Any Last Words? Yes. Two solid stories, but a dud of a filler. Going to go slightly out of form and call Private War my fave. Ads are okay. Letters page awesome. One and a half thumbs up. I'd say more or less same here, but if I ignore the two-page stinker, my rating goes up even further. I mean, as we just proved, those ads were kind of fun. So this is actually up there as as an issue I would hand to somebody if they wanted to know what Weird War Tales was like. I'd feel confident handing this one over. So, yeah, I dug it. And speaking of other people who like Weird War Tales comics, we're going to move on to a little section that we like to call the Dead Letter Office, where we discuss feedback we get from social media and Gmail. And I remember at the top here to tell you that you can buy merchandise 
at redbubble.com. Don't remember you the just, name of the couple. <laughs> you just go to redbubble.com. Very easy to say. And you search Weird Warriors Podcast and you can get our awesome logo drawn by Bill Walco. Printed on anything you could possibly imagine. So go ahead and do it. You can be customer number three after me and Rich. To get I've got some. a Weird Warriors Podcast refrigerator magnet. And I'm he not does. Lying. He does, folks. <laughs> he does, folks. And you don't. And you can fix that. Okay? So... While you're all rushing over to that website to order yourself some cool merch, I'll talk about likes and shares and stuff we got over on Twitter. So on Twitter, we have our uh, my buddy Mark Davis stopping by, and I'll mention again, he is at GE Comics Group on Twitter. He is an indie comics writer. He has his own company starting up, Golden Era Comics. They've got three issues out on Indie Planet. Number four coming soon. This is fun stuff. This is where I'm at these days with the comics made by people who have day jobs, who have no reason to be doing it, who aren't making any money off it and are doing it for fun. So Mark Davis at GE Comics Group. Now, moving on, we have other people stopping by. We have Liz and Oswalt. We have the 21st Century Boys podcast stopping by. Uh, FP Glasgow is here. Uh, Sergeant America comes around salutes us on twitter chris at bto and bat books long box of darkness our buddy herman Lowe is here bill at spy vinyl one of my favorite follows on twitter he uh, pairs comics with different kinds of food shows us pictures of them so we get to salivate over both and all other kinds of stuff bill is awesome at spy vinyl on twitter we have dave's comic heroes blog uh paul debetta our buddy Luke Giaconetti of the Earth Destruction Directive Giant Monster Movie Podcast. We have D. Nolte, Dance Along the Edge on Twitter. We got Into the Weird, another of Herman Lowe's fine accounts. Our longtime buddy Kirk Spencer at Big Five Army on Twitter. Professor Frenzy is here. Adam Stabelli, who is at Gotham Adam. So you might be able to guess what one of his themes is over on Twitter. He uh, is all about the Dark Knight Detective and so forth. We got Chris Lydon and Ninja Turtle Nerd 1984. Big props to that name. Uh, the handle on Twitter is at motherpugger1. So M-U-T-H-A-P-U-G-G-R-1. Get it right. We have Doc Strange, Billy Delicious stopping by. We have Dr. Bob's Kitchen, K-I-T-S-C-H-E-N. You get it? At Dr. underscore B-O-B-B on Twitter. He is one of the checkered chums from the checkered past podcast we have the telltale mind dr Ange, dr Ange 70 on twitter coffee and comics from our buddy clinton robison also stopped by to say what's up and some comments on twitter he did he did so dr Ange has a comment on twitter and he says the running water hurting vampires weakness was used well in one of alan moore's swamp thing issues if i recall although it may have been in the earlier uh, the earlier marty pasco issues from that run and he says great episode which is cool oh relatively geeky podcast network we have professor allen stopping by who says great episode thanks for the kind words because we gave him a shout out there i said thanks we are very psyched that people are enjoying our goofy little project and as for the nice words you're one of the folks who got us into this habit j'accuse <laughs> so so there we go because you know professor allen is one of the first podcast people i started listening to on the regular so over on the swampy waters of facebook we have people stopping by by the name of david Steele, who we know from the earth 2 podcast herschel mimis 
longtime internet buddy Ken Boutillier and Billy D, Billy Dunleavy. And we got an awesome comment from uh, our buddy Tim DeForest over on Facebook. He he gave us a link that I was so happy to see. He said, here's more information on Golden Funnies. It looks like it ran 15 issues with each issue being 12 pages long and with each comic strip being given one page worth of reprints, probably three or four daily strips per page. And he gives us a link with info covering that series that I was I was so hyped over in the ads for the issue everyone's discussing here. So again, Tim runs an awesome blog. It's uh, Comics and Old Time Radio. Over on Gmail, Jason Zeller, the initiator, the founder of the Binge Listener Award, writes and in. still one and only. The one and only, still. Hold on, he's defending the title consistently. He stops by the Gmail account, weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com, and he says... Hi, guys. Happy 2022, gentlemen. I look forward to another great year of Weird War Tales discussions. I enjoyed the discussion on this issue. It is too bad that the cover had nothing to do with the stories inside. He goes on to say, More Dead Than Alive was a strange story that had a shocking ending with the jarring image of the doctor's head on the patchwork soldier's body. It reminded me of Toy Story 1, in which the next door boy, Sid, had several toy heads and limbs mixed and matched. Which I thought was a great point. I had totally forgotten about that. Yeah, that was an awesome. That was an awesome link. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I was like, he's he, damn he's right. <laughs> that image, that? that image came back to me immediately. And he says the conquerors had a nice twist, but daytime vampires again? Really? Yes. Right on, Jason. Give it to him. <laughs> and don't wooden stakes through the heart kill vampires? So he's in tune with this letters page, man. He is right there. I guess I had been reading different vampire stories than the ones from the Weird War Tales vampires. I do agree with you, Max. The aliens did look like some version of the Who's from the Grinch story. And he goes on to say, Evil Eye was a nice story, but the soldiers gunning down planes again? I feel like we have seen it so many times. Can Killjoy check on this? How probable is it in war to be able to shoot down a plane? Is this something that happened regularly or is it more of a movie or comic trope? So Rich, I'm gonna let you go ahead and answer that one if you got something. Oh, of course I've got something. All right then. Well, that's one of the biggest killjoys from these 1960s comic books is like, you know, every third issue, Sergeant Rock is shooting down a dive bombing Stuka with his Tommy gun. I mean, planes were shot, you know, uh, shot down with, by ground fire, you know, like machine gun nests or whatever else like that. But basic infantry weapons, generally not. Um, it, it's possible you could get a lucky hit, you know, you know, bullet hits, you know, like the coolant tank, oil tank, something you hit the pilot or something, the plane will just crash or limp off trailing smoke or something. But yeah, they generally didn't explode either unless you hit the bomb or something. But yeah, Sergeant Rock firing that 45, you know, Tommy gun. You know, the Tommy fires a um, 45 caliber ACP round. It's it's a pistol round, which has about a third the range of, of, of a rifle bullet. And it's not very accurate either. So, yeah, no, 99.95% <laughs> of the time, you're wasting ammo, pal. <laughs> See, Jason, if you ask questions like that, one of us, and we know which one, will have an answer. So Jason goes on to say, the innocent child being a witch 
also seems to have been used before. I like Joel Orlando's question to the readers at the end of the letters page. More emphasis on the weird or the war? That is a tough question, but for someone who enjoys both genres, I truly believe most of the Weird War Tales comics were able to cover both in an enjoyable way. Take care, guys. Jason. And then we hear back from our our relatively new buddy, Mike Stewart, who writes in to say, hey, Max, still waiting with bated breath for my email on the March show, which is coming up, coming up quick here uh, as we record this uh, near, uh, what is it, the middle of February. He says, though, with the January show, I'm glad to hear others are keeping you from shutting down the Gmail account. Oh, yeah, I'm paying for talking about that. I actually have to check it now. So (laughs) Mike says, I did have a question. What is your podcast criteria for ad exchanges? I'm co-host on a podcast about old school role playing games and the games inspired by them called Save for Half at saveforhalf.com, people, and thought it would be fun to do an ad exchange. I know it's not a perfect fit, comics to games, but I suspect a lot of overlap and interest for our audiences. Let me know, Mike in Texas. Now, I was blown away by this because, first of all, I was blown away when Mike first wrote in, and then he says, oh, I'm the co-host of Save for Half, which I, a couple of months ago, just started listening to, and I didn't make the connection that this was the same mic. So uh, let me tell you, people, It's a, if you like RPGs like I do, and I was telling him, yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of crossover between role-playing nerds and comic book fans. It's a certainty, <laughs> you know? especially comics like this, which aren't necessarily superhero comics. Um, there's a lot of gamers that are into this kind of stuff. But even if there weren't, I'd be taking Mike's ad to play on our show because it's just it's just a fun show. Even if you don't know about the game they're talking about that time around, you'll have a great time listening to them. So I was utterly surprised, pleasantly so by that. You guys will be hearing about Save for Half here and go check it out even before we play the promo, you know? You know, if, if I get the promo soon, I'll put it at the top of this episode. You never know what's going to happen. Speaking of that, Rich is going to hit you with the teaser. What's going to happen next? <laughs> yeah, with, yeah, with what's going to happen next. I was going all William Shatner there, man. Thank God you jumped in. So Rich is going to hit you with the teaser for the next issue. Go. Weird War Tales number 24. It's what you're here for. Phantom Tigers. Future Despots. I have nothing else. Just be here, damn it. As Jack Kirby was fond of saying, don't ask, just buy it. And you know, we will. We already did. And you should too. And on that note, this has been the Weird Warriors podcast. We have been the Weird Warriors and we promise to make war. No more.